For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky from Longform. I'm here with Aaron Lammer, also from Longform, and Evan Ratliff of The Atavist. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. You guys next my whole uh, intro about the uh, flat tires I've been having? Just do your material. <laughs> do, do, what, do your what's been happening with your flat tires, Aaron? <laughs> uh, this week on the podcast, I talked to uh, Josh Behrman, uh, repeat offender. Uh, second time he's been on. Uh, last time he had a movie coming out of a story he wrote, a little movie called Argo. Uh, now he's got a new venture coming out called Epic. Uh, that's the first story is actually up on Medium right now. And to boot, he has new out of a story called Coronado High. A lot of stuff going on with Josh Behrman. Buy it at outofus.com. Yeah. Plug. If there's a lot of stuff going on with you in your life, and you want to tell all your friends about it, your coworkers, your family, you should use Tiny Letter. It's an email newsletter. It's a simple, elegant way to tell a whole bunch of people what's going on. Uh, we got another sponsor this week, uh, Igloo Software. Uh, Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It's a great way to get your team organized and doing good work. Uh, we thank them for their sponsorship. And here is Aaron and Josh Barron. Welcome, Josh Behrman. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Josh has only been here for a mere uh, uh, hour and a half, I would say. <laughs> but but you... Uh, Watching you, you fiddle with the knobs on the soundboard. You brought me beer, which uh, you're the first guest who's brought me beer, and I right. deeply, uh, deeply appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> really? I, you'd figure that you'd want to get the host a little liquored up a little bit. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I usually push drinking here, and people, a lot of people I feel like are, you know, they're nervous to go in without their uh, their defenses fully up, but uh, you seem you seem fully game. Uh, what, what, what has brought you to New York? Um, well, I just published this big story, both, it was sort of co-published in GQ and The Atavist, called Coronado High, and I uh i'm trying to do some publicity around it there's a 60 minutes piece in the works that mm. is going to tell <laughs> part of the story and yeah. stuff like that so i was doing work with that basically you know kind of trying to promote the story and get yeah. it out there yeah right on well let's talk a little bit about that story because i just read it like an hour ago so it's, <laughs> it's very it's very fresh in my head um for people who haven't read the story i would encourage people who haven't read the story to pick up the atavist version because 
the Atavis version is what twenty five thousand words. words yeah. I mean, this is it's really like a book, like a short book, and it's, it's like a novella. It's length. a novella length, and the GQ version I have not read, but I know it's a condensed version of yeah. the story. Yeah, um, and it's, it's a, solid, but it's just you know. it's a sprawling story. Yeah, uh, it you know it, it covers what about uh, twenty years of the guy's lives. Yeah, it covers uh, more than a decade. Yeah, more than a decade. And, and the GQP sort of has to GQP reads more like this thrilling true crime caper tale, and then the Atavis piece is a has more of the characters, and it's the coming of age tale yes. <laughs> set against the true crime caper. But in in both contexts, this is like. While I was reading it, I felt like I was like, this is like a movie pitch. This is like a not particularly believable movie pitch. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a pretty incredible story. It's about a group of high school friends from Coronado, California, who, uh, along with their former Spanish teacher, start what was at the time, I think, one of the largest drug smuggling operations in America. Uh, right. First swimming and then boating marijuana from around the world. Right. Um where where did you find the story? I mean, what was like? What was the where where where, where did you pick up the trace? Well, uh, this I got. This was a tip. Now I get a lot of tips. Oh, um, interesting. You, it's and, like catfish. Where now, like you know, that guy's like the the face of catfish. You're like <laughs> right. you're like the face of like set like seventies. Like uh, yeah, exactly. Like seventies yeah. epic capers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've done three in a row now because yeah. my last piece, my Playboy piece, also was the seventies caper. I do feel like I have to break it up a little bit, although my next story is also the <laughs> 70s. Um, but this is this story was known around Coronado. It was kind of like local folklore and mythology. Yeah. And so everybody from particularly Coronado, which is this little sort of – Do you have ties to Coronado? No, no, oh, okay. no. But so it's it's known. And then a friend of mine had, I think, heard about it that way and had looked into it a little bit. It hadn't been written about since – uh, this is not going to be really a spoiler alert because everybody knows what happens at the yeah. end of True Crime Tales, which is everybody uh, goes down and goes to prison. Yes. And so then it was this big court case in like the early 80s and then disappeared. Everybody sort of did their short prison sentences, and or sometimes not so short, and then disappeared. So the story hadn't been written about in quite some time, but people sort of had knew about this. And so when I heard about it, I just started gathering up all the old news items. And there was a 60 Minutes piece in 1984 or something. And um, and then slowly, I mean, I heard about it like five years ago. Then I slowly started looking into it more and tried to figure out the names of the sort of key players, looking yeah. at the indictments, which had a lot of names on them. Then I got court records, and then eventually I broke through and got to some of the to the players. Let's let's rewind that because I want to pick apart sort of each of these these steps along the sequence. So you've sure. got tips. Who who are these tipsters? <laughs> this particular story was was. Uh, I've heard about I've heard about from a couple different people, but the the guy who who for, who really knew the story was uh, my friend David Clawance, who had also tipped me off to the Argo story. Really? Yeah. Do you pay him? No, he gets. I mean, if we if we what's what's his with, game with Argo? Yeah. He got to be a producer on the movie. That oh, was his whole good. idea from the beginning. Really? Which at that time I just thought was a make believe concept. Like I didn't realize that that wasn't, you know, he was like, Oh, we can make a movie. And I was like, yeah, sure. Whatever. I'm going to do this wired story, <laughs> yeah. you know, and get paid my like $7,500. Okay. So and where is he getting all these great stories? He from? is, uh, just all he'd likes to do is look through, uh, old newspapers and stuff like that mm. and look for weird stories. So this is something that he had known about for a while, but in, in truth, as I started reporting the story, I realized that a lot of people at various times have been onto it and tried to do 
a book about it or even yeah. it had floated around as a as like a real real kind of half-assed movie pitch at times yeah people would hear about it and be like surfers and pod and whatever yeah right so it seems like when i was reading it that your primary source is the spanish teacher primary source was was the spanish pops. teacher pops uh poppers <laughs> old poppers um uh, they also call him, he just told me, he's like Lance, who was one of the other characters, who's dead, for yeah. example, um, used to call him Coolio, which was some word, maybe Spanish or something, for the golden tongue. Which you you know that it's a stoner story when you have to, like, there's multiple nicknames for each character. <laughs> oh, dude. Also, I was like, what happened to nicknames? In the dude. 70s, everybody had all these cool nicknames. I know. I, Nobody I'll, did not have a nickname. And, and like, all the nicknames are, like, weirdly kind of, like, Underminey of them, but yeah. also kind of like, yeah. like, like I, I made me dis. I mean, made me feel like I'm just a person who hasn't like merited a nickname to date. I know. I was, I was kind of jealous. I was like, we need to kickstart this, this like nickname thing again. <laughs> I loved. I mean, Lance, he was the wizard, and there's the otter, he, and then the otter. But Lance was also ensign hero, and lights which, is a and great, then lights, great nickname. Light show or lights, depending. <laughs> Light show Lahadni. Yeah, and Kid. and then we'll so here we'll run through all the characters. So mm. these are the these are the main guys in the story. Should we do yeah. that? Yeah, let's do it. I'm the whole story. Yeah, I'm interested. So so the so the main group of guys they all went grew up together in Coronado, and there was Lance uh, Weber, aka. Uh, the wizard and also Ensign Hero. <laughs> yeah. um, he was called Ensign Hero because he had been in the Navy, but he also had this sort of outsized view of himself. And then Ensign is low level in the rank. So he was like Ensign, but also a hero. So they were yeah. always making fun of him. And then there was Light Show Lahadni, who was Bob Lahadni, who was sort of like this handsome charmer guy who um, actually had helped them sort of develop their connection to this very, very lucrative form of pot in Thailand called Thai Stick, which you may recall from Chichen Chong Records. Yes, <laughs> you know? and, and, my, and my personal life. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and then there was uh, Ed Otero, the otter, Eddie the otter, and he had been uh, this kind of unruly, bulky, like kind of big character who laughed all the time but was super strong and was like, uh, they call him otter because he's a really great surfer. So he would go in and swim the bales of pot to the yeah. to the little boats. And then the wizard was called the wizard because he was really good with uh, like mechanics and engineering, and he would soup up the boats to run all fast and stuff like that. And then there was uh, well, then there was this guy Dave who was Lou's right hand man. They called him Dirty. That did, that nickname didn't get much play. Yeah, Dirty's a tough one. <laughs> Dirty McGee or something. No, no, what do they call him? Dirty Dave. But, which I thought was funny because the thing is, is he said like he was very, very fastidious and not dirty at all, and he was the only hippie who shampooed his hair every day. Yeah, that's a great detail. <laughs> yeah. there, there's, a, there's a few details in the story where you would drop something that's like not really that important, but like really sort of cued the montage in my head like where they're like um like playing like rumors on a speedboat <laughs> and i was like i was like you just like it just it just turned on and then there's like that very specific point in the story also where you just everyone just starts doing coke yeah and it's like right. and, and it all gets kind of dark and yeah. it happens very like subtle like all these these shifts in the story are very subtle like you feel like you're on a, on a journey with a bunch of people where they kind of it keeps Escalating a level in a sort of Goodfellas ish way. Yeah. It's like it's like the 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 weed Goodfellas. I yeah. feel like it's kind of the story. Or Boogie Nights. Boogie it's Nights. Similar to Boogie Nights. Yes. Because it's like the early days of this tawdry trade. Yes. When they were all just misfits hanging out together and like a family. They had this real family strong together uh, togetherness and 
which is why it's sort of tragic when like they start to get older and yeah. and eventually disappoint one another and you know things get dicey. Yeah. And then they start doing cocaine and the eighties show up <laughs> and Reagan and it all goes to pot. And were these guys when into you doing a story? I mean, were they were it they took in a while. favor of no, it? No, no, yeah. no, it took a while. It was like what's those... what's that first conversation like? Hey, I'm Joshua Behrman. Oh, like man. it took just forever. It was like one of those all these stories, man. It's just like oh, I gotta like convince somebody. To, like, well, well, I'm interested. Like, what do you? Okay, so I, like I'm I'm um, this aging like stoner who's done a little like prison time, and yeah. you want to do a story <laughs> about me? Like, what what do you tell them that you're gonna do? Well, the, the trick with this one is now everybody has sort of spent like 30 years in civilian life trying to rebuild their careers right. and their lives as sort of civilians. And so they're touchy about it, and they've often moved different places and tried to keep low key and not let their local, you know, neighbors know that they were once big time drug smugglers. So I had to be mindful of that because there's good reason to be, and also try to. I mean, the main thing I did was I reached. I mean, to be honest, in this case, just by virtue the fact that I reached them, they were so shocked yeah. that I managed to figure out who they were and reach them that they were like already kind of primed to consider talking how much like how much did you know when you were like how much of the I story did you already had? I had thousands of pages of court documents so, so it wasn't like it could be like hey that's not me yeah. I'm a different guy I was like or no like, like page 22 of the thing yeah. of the deposition on July you know yeah. 31st 1983 um, so I knew enough although I still I mean the, the basic reporting of just getting the, the narrative bones of the story like what happened and when and who was there and, and you know that took like two months yep. solid you know and then it was like another two months of reporting to get all the character stuff and figure out sort of what the emotional part of the story was. But um, I reached out to them. They were reluctant. I first reached uh, Dave. Then I talked to Lou. Then I talked to Fuzzy and Harlan. And then I found the DEA agents. Ooh, really? That was a that was a key thing. Now, can that was actually one of the big key sources was James Conn. Can DEA agents talk they're about? All they're all retired. So this stuff is it's not also, classified. I or feel any- like they don't. Maybe if they were still, they're also old school agents, so they yeah. were like, yeah, who cares? You know, like they're kind yeah. of these old gumshoe type yeah. of coppers. And um, and uh, I mean, actually, the, there were quite quite a quite a riot. Uh, there was my one of my favorite details is that when Lance, who eventually became part of the an informant and then you know close with the DEA, was married years later, James Conklin, the DEA agent that like led the task force that brought down the Coronado Company, he went to Lance's wedding. And he gave him as a present, like some handcuffs and a shadow box that said, "Congratulations on your life sentence." It's <laughs> <laughs> like so old school, yeah, and ridiculous but awesome. Pranks, yeah, <laughs> copper pranks. Uh, so Jim was a big source. He was fine. He's a private eye in you know Las Vegas now. And then all the DEA agents. I mean, because there were like a dozen of them. I talked to you know a good half dozen agents at various points. Interesting. So after doing. The, uh, for people who are uh, listening, and uh, I haven't actually uh, introduced this, uh, Josh, a uh, previous piece I did uh, was a Wired piece that became the movie Argo, which is what we talked about the last time you were on the Long Form Podcast, uh, which was a, we just wanted to do a sort of a mini, mini episode. This is yeah. your, this is the big episode. We're going big here. <laughs> um, that piece, I think a lot of people were surprised to learn, it's not a massive piece. I'd say the with the Argo piece, about 5,000 yeah. words or something. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a it's a traditional, not huge magazine story. So, you know, 
there aren't that many details in it. Like it's kind of the it's kind of the story, and that's it. There's not there's not a lot of color yeah. in approaching this story, knowing that you were gonna go longer. Like, wh- where do you where do you build the other twenty thousand words into mm-hmm. a story like this? Well, this was a weird scenario because I didn't know how long the story was going to be, so I didn't realize I was going to write this Oh, so you didn't set out thing. to write a 25,000 no, word story. No, I thought, I was like, well, I write kind of long anyhow, so yeah. if I had my druthers, that Argo story would have been 10,000 words. Yeah. Um, and I think I probably turned in like nine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I always write long, so I figured this piece would be like 15,000 words, and I could maybe sneak that into a magazine. Yeah. You know, and, you know, do this. I had this co-publishing idea in mind with the Atavist. Yeah as well or you know whatever so i didn't actually know what i was setting out to do um but i wrote this i as i was reporting it i realized how sort of colossal the story was in the span and all the different characters and as i realized the relationships and i realized there was more to the story because i went in knowing like this is a kick-ass story from the beginning because like the la times piece from 1983 that kind of has the original indictment and has basically the basic facts of the case lays out a pretty good story but it gets a lot of stuff wrong, and it's out of sequence, and it doesn't really build a narrative, and it doesn't have, it doesn't under, it doesn't sort of, you know, do what a twenty thousand word piece is, which is where you can like live with these characters and then see them change over time. And I had never really done that. This just yeah. kind of happened that way, you know. I've had stories like that. My last story was sort of like a rise and fall story about this Bert Schneider, this producer, yeah, and smuggling Huey Newton, or like almost like a swan song story, and. Um, you know, like I've had stories with a narrative arc, but not quite like this, where you're sp- like taking, following a bunch of people. So the shorter version is still like one of the longer pieces. D- does it forever. bother you? I mean, like I'm like a, you know, like a like a weird like record collector completist, where you know, like mm. sort of the idea of definitive versions and releases. Mm. Like, does I remember it, does this it... from our Twitter exchange about Stevie Nicks. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that in the show notes, um, but. Does it bother you that there's these two versions floating out there and you're at like a cocktail party and you don't know if someone talks to you about it, you don't know which one they've read? Um, I mean, does it bother you to have sort of these multiple formats existing simultaneously? No, it only bothers me insofar as I would like the longer version to be well read because I put a lot of work into it and because I really sort of felt like I made like sort of a jump in my storytelling abilities in this story with that longer version. The shorter one is great and it's a really solid GQ story, but this longer one like tells a, tells a much more impactful story because it, because it, it's able to spend more time dealing with the people. And like you say, keeping all those details about them, these moments that they would, that these people spent together and then what it was like when the lives they had came apart, Yeah, you know, those land more, when you're when you have the room to kind of really lay the groundwork and in fact when i was writing this piece i mean look i was like 15,000 words into it and only cracked my outline and i was like what is going on here like i yeah. can't i like i'm it was uh, you know at times i was like i'm in the weeds i don't know what i'm doing like this is crazy and then i was like no this is a masterpiece i would mm-hmm. oscillate between those yeah. now i'm sort of erring towards masterpiece yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> to my own horn I'm um, certainly not in the weeds uh, but like it came out well it came out to be it came out it read well even at that crazy long length now well it's clearly a masterpiece I mean I don't think there's any anything debating uh, there but one of one of the things that's sort of unusual about the experience of, of this atavist version is you uh, like 
certain points you punch in and it's actually audio. It's like the, mm-hmm. the coat, the, the pops speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you sort of navigate something like that? Like, how do you navigate? Did you plan the sort of multimedia stuff in advance? Did you leave a hole for it? Because I was thinking, like, if I don't listen to this, like, oh, you don't yeah. describe what, what's happening. Oh, in yeah. it. There's all these weird vagaries of, yeah. of the changing world of st- yeah. storytelling. And, like, um, I don't really know. There's no, like, best practices. But, like, do you, were you like, no, I want to show was... this part in text and then this no, part I'm just no, going to no, do no. the document? I just wrote. I, you just, I mean, one writes, and I'm assuming. I, this is what I do. At yeah. the very, this is just the text of the story. Yeah. I don't really think about the multimedia until it's done. And then I sort of. Uh, you know, then the production starts at the Atavist, and we're like, oh, we're going to make a video, we're going to do this. That audio is all just from the recording session where we got Lou to tell some of his, you know, some of the stories, the episodes, in kind of exciting detail from the piece so then they could be animated and make the little trailer. I suppose I should disclaimer here, this podcast is also produced by the Atavist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a conflict of interest. Yeah. (laughs) Fundamentally. Well, I mean, my Um, interest was uh, getting someone to come tape a podcast with me on Sunday night while I was very hungover. (laughs) You're the only person I know who is possibly going to do that. But now that you've taken on this, this kind of like a big story that I don't know what the fuck we're calling this stuff, mini books singles at whatever whatever yeah. you want to call it you're um you're planning to to launch a venture that will be producing this kind of work yourself yeah so um josh i mean partly because i had such a good experience publishing digitally with the Baghdad country club with the Atavist. yeah and um with um and then with coronado hi which you know, was kind of if I hadn't written it on spec, like I wouldn't have been able to kind of sell it in the way that I did. It's yeah. hard to find a venue actually for, you know, something that happened in the seventies, even as 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 compelling as the story is. Yeah. And so even Argo like almost didn't make it at Wired. I know. I I hear this from consistently from writers who are on the show. They're like, I had this great story idea, but it like we you know it needed a like hook, blank or, component to yeah. appear in GQ or right. a blank component right. for it to make it a New Yorker story. That right. there's there's a there's a, a threshold beyond this is a good story that's necessary to interest editors at at specific magazines yeah. that have you know more rigid uh, definitions of yeah. what they want to be doing, both in length and in, in tone. Yeah. Well, yeah, they do. And, you know, to some extent, like, that's part of the editorial identity that they then sell to advertisers. So that's just what they have to do, which is fine. Cause is that why there were so many bow ties in the story? <laughs> Dude, it's like, it was so opposite. Like, if you ran, like, a fashion spread of the dudes in Coronado High, they'd yeah. all just be wearing, like, T-shirts with, like, dolphins on them. Oh, like, they look kind of awesome, yeah, no, they and were, the, pi- the pictures are oh great. I, when I first saw the picture of Lance that's in there, I was like, this it's beautiful. <laughs> the <laughs> part, there's the picture of them where they're all on top of bales. Like, the, they're on, they're about eight feet in the air on top um, of piles of weed. Pot, and I was yeah. like, who whose idea was it to take this picture? <laughs> like, yeah. like, this picture is a felony. Yeah, like, a, r- it, right yeah. there. By the way, the, what they're doing up there is those those bales have come across in the hold of some ship, and they're... It's organic material, so it's emitting gas and heating. So when they come in, they're like 150 degrees. Really? And so they have to like aerate them by cutting slits in all of them with knives. So they're up there with the knives, and then they were like taking a break, just hanging out on 10 tons of tie stick. 
Yeah, I just moved out of my storage locker, and while I was reading the story, I was like, man, smuggling weed, a lot of manual labor, just like when I just moved. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so you're, I, I keep trying to oh, yeah. lead so, you in here. So this whole thing, here. so yeah, so what we're doing is, so the editorial identity of the of Rolling Stone has to has certain parameters. Yeah. So our idea was basically, you know, there's this renaissance of long-form nonfiction online in the past couple of years, as you well know, yeah. partly spearheaded by one yeah. longform. Yeah, yeah. Dot org. I've always wanted to be involved in something that had a renaissance in the word in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, so basically, right. So what's happening is long-form journalism is being done by kind of like shirtless men eating grapes and in yeah. like uh, gilded pavilions. Yeah. Isn't that what happened in the renaissance? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that the kind of renaissance you wanted to be part of? More of like a renaissance fair is kind of the vibe <laughs> right. I was going for. Like oh, uh, right. steak eating on a, a steak? Yeah, eating a big uh, tur- turkey leg from a serving wench. <laughs> right. I don't know what renaissance I just described. <laughs> I think that was in the renaissance what they imagined they wanted to be doing. I think the renaissance, a renaissance fairs may actually um, be based on a time period that's not the renaissance. Because yeah. isn't a renaissance fair kind of more like the black ages? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's like the dark ages if everybody was stoned and like a ham radio enthusiast. Yeah. Hey. Pardon the interruption. Quick word from your host and our sponsors, Igloo Software. Uh, Igloo is an intranet. That's intra, not internet. Intranet uh, you're actually going to like. It's a place your team can share content with blogs, calendars, file sharing, forums, wikis, uh, all rolled into a really nice social bundle where you can follow and get updates from everyone you work with. Uh, You can add on rooms as your teams grow, mini igloos. Uh, The whole thing's very easy to use. I've got a chance to play with it drag and drop everything, uh, responsive design, really nice fonts from Tightkit, uh, really good security uh, program also. So best part is it's free to use with up to 12 people. Uh, sorry, that's 10 people. It's up to free to use with up to 10 people. After that, it's only 12 bucks a month per team member. So you can start today. Uh, just go to igloosoftware.com slash longform. That's igloosoftware.com slash longform and start building your igloo. Back to me and Josh Behrman. I have I, every time you've tried to introduce your new publishing platform, <laughs> I've just taken it somewhere that we're completely away. So you, you're so, you're launching this one. Yeah, so it should be out by the time this airs. Of non, yeah, it's gonna be. I think it's gonna be out by the time. It's called Epic. Yes, so it's called Epic. Yeah. Um, long form nonfiction having a field day on the internet. Yep. We got Atavis. We got long form. There's well, a byliner, there's a, you know, Verge and whatever. So we wanted to do something where the editorial identity would just kind of specifically be these type of page turner, yeah, nonfiction narrative. So yarns. It, it's you and Joshua Davis, yep, who who you can um, hear talking about his story about McAfee, which I heard is being made into a movie. It was it was option. It was option. We'll see what so happens. you guys are like possibly the leading um, adaptation. You guys uh, both have uh, had a lot of movies optioned from your stories and you both I think have a pretty cinematic sensibility um, and it seems like if, correct me if I'm wrong uh, knowing that that sort of world is out there for you has led you to like I'm not going to make stuff in the mold of a magazine or whatever you're kind of like I'm going to do my own thing and maybe someone will make a movie about it or whatever it sort of created a more independent atmosphere that yeah. where the storytelling is sort of 
more open-ended. Yeah. Um, well, maybe more recently. I mean, up until real recently, I had a very traditional, I would just yeah. sell magazine stories, which is what I basically did. And then, like, those stories, I tend towards these narrative stories, and I realized after the Argo option, Argo option that the entertainment world was interested in a certain type of story, and so I have a lot of stories. I'm always, what's and what started filtering up then was... Yeah. Stuff like that, because to be honest, it's sort of subsidized freelance magazine writing, which otherwise is a spectacularly unremunerative <laughs> business. Um, so, you know, it basically like, you know, just made it even yeah. uh, with like what people get paid to go to work at an ad agency or whatever. I don't yeah. know, you know, just regular jobs. So, Renaissance um, fair kind of jobs. Yeah, like we're working at Steak on a Steak. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, again, like I, I graduated from Steak on a Steak wages to, you know, like the Queen's retinue. You now you're managing the Renaissance fair. <laughs> well, I haven't quite gotten there. I think that's Michael Lewis yeah. who's managing the Ren Fair. Yeah. He's, a, he's still a step. Well, there's still people above, you know, there's people who have done quite well. You're jousting. Yeah, I'm just, I'm in the joust pit. Uh, so. Yeah, I would say that, I would say that. You know, I've actually been very traditional and has Josh. He's been a contributing editor at Wired for 10 years and yeah. has mostly written for Wired but a few other publications. Yeah. And it's only because, well, like the, this like space as they – I just remember I was at South by South – we were at South, South by Southwest and yeah. I was like, I was like, I better figure out what space I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about different spaces. Yeah. And so I guess, I guess I'm in the nonfiction narrative space. Yeah. Because um, I realized being in the writing space wasn't sexy enough. So yeah, maybe that's how Epic came about. Actually, is kind of how it came about because I went to South by Southwest. Yeah, and then and you're there were all and these we're, panels. It's like the future out, of journalism. We're hanging out in the journalism. The, the the journalism's in the like the weird like like shitty motel like a mile away from <laughs> yeah. the rest of the conference. Yeah, <laughs> where only other people there are like journos. Like, yeah. Oh, we gotta figure out how to make this pay for itself. And and so. everything else is South by Southwest. Like, don't even go, man. The lines around the block. You're like the journalism place. Like people are just wandering in yeah. off the street. They're in not checking out. badges or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I you know, and yeah, the, everybody would be considering the fate of print or whatever. So. It was kind of around that I thought, oh well, maybe it would be interesting to. There's going to be more of these kind of digital publishing places. What if what if there was one where the editorial sensibility was just sort of like these super strong narrative, mm -hmm. really, really, really kind of strong narrative pieces. Yeah. So it means we're publishing fewer stories. I mean, like we're gonna we're like we're not going to force it if their stories are good and like what what like what is, what's your outlook how many do you want to well, do in the first year like six yeah. a year we were considering various different ways to make this make any financial sense yeah a lot of those ways did not <laughs> that we considered <laughs> then we courted or we were courted by various investors people would sort of get wind of this thing and be like i want to put all this money in and we we're yeah. like okay what does that mean like and then i was sort of like are you serious and then they were serious and then it was all spreadsheets and whatever, but it still didn't ever. It didn't quite make sense for various reasons. Yeah. And then uh, Josh Davis knew somebody from Wired who was now working with Medium, which is this new platform that Ev Williams from Twitter, Obvious Corp, and, and yeah, Obvious and you know Internet fame uh, is creating. And they were looking there. That platform is sort of about you know democratizing content, but not at Twitter length, more at sort of like essay or longer length longer yep. form yep. um and it's like twitter for long form in some yeah. kind of way um it's a bit like a sort of a like a white label like writing space where it's just kind of like hey post an article like yeah. with the 
no nothing really attached to it like that's it's a blank canvas of sorts but i think there's also supposed to be sort of like a community aspect and like yes. the quality stuff rises up and then yes. there's the editor's picks and and uh so they were sort of uh looking for i mean this is my understanding because i actually don't you know, I never got the. You, you don't. You don't have the internet, right? I never. Well, I never got the like strategy memo for like oh, really? this is why we're, you know, dealing with these content providers, as I'm sure we're called in yeah. the paperwork. Um, Suckers. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, yeah, here and after referred to as suckers. <laughs> um, uh, you know, they wanted to bring sort of like quality stuff at a at a, at a magazine level to their to yeah. their brand and sure. kind of like spruce it up like that way. So, um, and they've got this platform that allows this certain type of like reader and user community interaction, which I think is interesting. It is somewhat contrary to my idea of supreme authorship of the like genius artist. Yeah. Um, however, what do what does that mean for you? Like, are people going to be like like putting comments into yeah, the story. There's like the, it's set up so that you can you can comment along the way in the story, sort of like SoundCloud. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, and it's neater and and crisper and like seems to encourage a quality of commentary that is not like YouTube commentaries. Yeah. So the idea is that you could actually create like a community around a story or something. Right. Um, and you, I hate, think that, you hate that idea. I don't hate that idea. I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah. I do think it's an interesting idea. I, it is somewhat at cross purposes of my goal as a writer, which right. is, yeah, it's like, get to stay off my lawn. Uh, no, I just think, you know, like you, story comes out on Wired and there's always like 17 weirdos who are like, actually that was a Sikorsky helicopter, not a Bell Howell. That like, that's, that's the point. That's yeah. what they took from the stories. That's yeah. the wrong helicopter. Yeah. When in fact it probably is not the wrong helicopter. You're worried the about the stickling. Yeah, the, the sticklers. sticklers are all like monkeying around and like <laughs> all grouchy about some shit. And so, um, you know, like to enable them to be like commenting on everything, I was like, whoa, what the fuck? But I think that if you have a commentary, if it's more like book club, you know, yeah. or something, right? Which I think it can be for a really big story. Like if John, if Josh's McAfee story, yeah, had been in a platform like that when it came out, yeah, which was like tearing up the internet and everybody's kind of following that story yeah big that story. would have been really interesting to yeah. see who was kind of relating to that story and kind of see that community forming almost geospatially the way it's laid out on the page yeah and like what parts of the story are about you know different topics like belize or yeah. virus software or whatever so it's kind of a cool idea um but i don't know how that's going to play out with our stuff we're just forging ahead with like typical like we're just doing cool magazine stories yeah it's an, cool ex it's an experiment of yeah. sorts so like the where it is is not necessarily the biggest deal about it like it could be anywhere it yeah. could be on epic yeah epic. it's almost like a content partnership right it could be on bearman and davis.com and yeah. it wouldn't be that different is it could be on yeah bearman.livejournal is doing i mean do you have other things you want to do with these stories that, that you're going to be doing is are movies something that you're thinking about well yeah doing? i think we're we're josh and i are both thinking about basically sort of trying to see how Scalable to mm -hmm. get businessy again. Yeah, <laughs> to go back to South by Southwest for a second. Yeah, um, it's hard to tell with me and you in the room here who knows less about business. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you've heard about scalability, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's somewhere. It has something to do with mobile operability. Yeah, yeah. Well, it I, actually doesn't have anything to do with that. But um, mobile. It, it's, it's. I on, just know it's that on, those are terms. It's on all, all the new devices. Those are things that people say. Yeah, Android. Yeah, and I'm just it, saying Android. It's going to be on Android and Windows. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be on Snoop Lion. 
<laughs> Windows OS new flying. Um, all right, so what the fuck was I saying? We're, so you, you're you're developing oh, these stories. Oh yeah, movie stuff. So and you like, don't really know where they're like Josh be. and I have managed to create um, the ability to have flexibility to write stories. Like for example, this Coronado story just simply would not have been written yeah. if I hadn't sort of had a foot in both the magazine and movie world and had right. the ability to sort of go off and just work on that story. And enough for, money in your bank account that you could afford to get paid after, not before, on right. that kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. yeah, and then like hope that it would sell as a movie, which I mean, not did. that that's and like then, a, you know, that much money, but that's, you know, I, I imagine right, I imagine five years ago you couldn't have written a 25,000-word right. story on spec. Right, exactly, not at all. <laughs> I mean, although I kind of, you know, I wrote 10,000-word stories on basically on spec, like for Harper's. <laughs> like, that's how you break in, too, yes. right? You break in, but then you don't need to get paid. Now you kind of do. So so that system has made it possible. I mean, it's sort of like what you, one would do traditionally and still does just with books, where you write a piece and then you sell it as a book, and yep. you used to be able to get these huge book contracts, and then that would pay you to you know, kind of have a freelance writing career. Yeah. Um, the book stuff is getting, you know, smaller and, you know, a little bit tougher. And then the movie stuff is, is it's just a whole new kind of marketplace that has always been there, but hasn't really ever been, a lot of people just don't think about it systematically. Yeah. And I wouldn't have if it wasn't for Argo, which was like a lightning bolt, you know, and then I realized like, well, it's not that hard to kind of like think about stories in that way yeah and then also now that i've seen like it's pretty cool like i had written the story which on its own like in wired has got seven hundred thousand subscribers or yeah. and however many people online read it and then the story got another whole life in this bigger you know on the movie screen so right like my story had a got this much bigger audience so that's very appealing yeah and is, is that something i mean have you changed how you go about what you do or did you just sort of naturally gravitate towards like rise and fall cocaine and marijuana stories with like a bunch you know that, that i have gravitate this, towards those stories yeah i would do all different kind of, in fact my next i'm trying to my i just because this story took so fucking long and yeah. it was so complicated <laughs> and like was like it was like kind of agonizing and beautiful to write like i got it got very like almost personal and like there's this it was super emotional i started to get to know these people really well and it was like therapy half the time with yeah. them on the phone about like the high point of their lives and what disappointments yeah. came from that time and the joys and the glories and the tragedy of time <laughs> like all this stuff you know like yeah super deep in there and you know, even like sort of stuff like, you know, if people who know me well will realize that parts of that story are actually about me. Like it's just because of like my own things that have happened in life that like I, I really like these are these are these are people's lives and there's aspects of them that are totally unrelated. But you can connect to as a universal what, like human experience. What, what like what what parts of your life does that mirror? You, well, you want to get into well, I'll it? just leave that to the like cognoscenti. Okay, but, um, and you can fill in the comments, anyone who has theories <laughs> about what Josh is talking about. Well, I just mean, you know, it's like, because the story is about loss of innocence and, like, yeah. getting to a certain point in your life where you just realize, like, oh, youth, like, the excitement of youth has, has, you know, is essentially over. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying entirely, but, like, I just mean, like, life at a certain point gets complicated and there's yeah. consequences and things get hard and, like, these are people that dealt with those consequences in a way that I never did because they had to go to prison. Right. Or, like, you know, destroy their friends' lives or whatever. Right. And so that's what I liked yeah. about this story. Yes. Is that, like, it was a true crime story, which anybody can be, like, all excited about, but it becomes universal when, like, I realize there's this, there's this emotional experience that these characters go through that anybody can relate to, essentially. Yeah. And I did, as a writer, spending so long with them right. and really feeling it. And, you know... I don't know. It's like, you know, my mom died this past year, right? So yeah. you just deal. It's like that makes you think about things differently. Yeah. And, 
you know, it's like stuff like that, big things in life. And yeah. so um, the, some of that stuff happened. Some of those types of things were the stuff where it was like that type of feeling that was going on in the story. Were you looking for that or did you find, I mean, did you find No, I didn't it? know it was in the story. Yeah. That's what actually the freedom to spend all that time yeah. talking to those people over with like spaces in between and thinking about it and yeah. kind of doing other stuff and coming back to it. And I would realize I went back after I'd written a version of the story and I was like, there's a stronger love story in here. I know it for a fact. And I had a hunch of where it was and then I realized that that's where it was and I went back and I totally reported the news part of the story. You know, the beautiful scene where there's uh, water skiing yeah. slaloming across the surface of Lake Tahoe listening to rumors and the vintage Chris Craft playing yeah. <laughs> Fleetwood Mac on the H track, yeah. which is so beautiful with Carrie, Lou's girlfriend, on yeah. the skis. And then she takes the boat out and catches Mackinac trout and stuffs it whole for dinner for the whole family. And it yeah. seems like the most wonderful time ever. That's stuff that came out in the second or third round of reporting where I realized these personal relationships. When our businesses scale, I think me and you need to try to emulate that scene as <laughs> closely yeah. as possible. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, that's what I mean, too, about connecting with these people because they'd be talking about it. They hadn't talked about it in years. And I was like, man, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. And then, you know, Carrie would be like, yeah, it was. Yeah. You know, until... <laughs> We lost it, yeah. you know, and like she's an older woman now thinking about it differently. And I was like, oh, right. Like that's really landing. You know, yeah. I had also seen all these pictures of these people at that time, all high school yearbook photos I was looking at. And then like in their early 20s. Yeah. And then when I would see them and now they're 60 and 70 and I was like, oh, right. Like this is what's this well, is what happens. When what was your coming of age as a writer like? I mean, when did you start like making start a living writing? writing? Until, like eight years ago, nine yeah. years ago, full time. What were you doing before that? Uh, I was kind of fucking around. <laughs> I mean, I went to college kind of young and then like wasn't really ready and kind of failed out and yeah. fucked around and then uh, went to Europe and hung around with friends in Prague and did stuff like that for a while yeah. and then kind of wandered around sort of semi-homeless for like six months, I worked in a pizza hut. I, you know, lived in a studio with four other people. I like lived on the roof of my old school <laughs> for, for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Weird shit like that. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then I sort of slowly got myself back to, you know, sort of, I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. Yeah. And um, I went back to school and then I went to UCLA. And then by well, then what I was did, like what 25. Did you, what did you go back to school for? History uh. and European studies. Yeah, I think that was my major. And tell me why you know so much about the Renaissance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why I know everything about <laughs> imagery of the Renaissance, which is uh, not at all what it looked like. But um, and then I was like really ready to be in school, and I did well yeah. and studied. What? Like, when did you say like I'm going to write an article and try and publish it? I was in grad school uh, here at Columbia, and I was actually going to International Public Affairs uh, School, SIPA. Yeah, and. I was there because I was like, well, I speak German. I like traveling. Like, I'll go into the Foreign Service, which in retrospect is a really silly idea because I don't like having to be somewhere every day. I don't <laughs> or, like work. Yeah, <laughs> I don't really. And I don't like people telling me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that really I'm so glad that, well, that just would not have worked at all. But um, and then during that time, I sort of got interested in writing and. I just sort of discovered like McSweeney's and the New Yorker and all that stuff and McSweeney's had yeah. just started and I I sent a letter to Dave uh I can't remember what 
Dave Eggers. Eggers. Yeah. Well, I know what his no, name I, is. And then I just sent him a note because back then there was no, it was just him and his computer. Yeah. And I sent him an email and he was like, oh, yeah, like you should send me something. Yeah. And uh, so I sent an interview, a Q&A with my dad, who's a physicist. And it was just like kind of this funny interview about his this project he was working on yep. sort of imaging the Dead Sea Scrolls the interview was funny because my dad is like kind of grouchy and so I just left all of the ancillary stuff that you usually cut out of a Q&A in yeah. the Q&A so it's like my dad's like you need to change your voicemail <laughs> upset that I was like being goofy on my voicemail and then he would be calling me like he's all it's not professional and then he's like then he just starts yelling at the dog yeah <laughs> like his own dog that's jumping on him and he's you know like freaking out about the dog which is a very common occurrence but he's like yelling into the phone so all that was in there, and that got published. And then that was the first thing that got published, and it happened to come at, at the right at the time that McSweeney's took off. You're hearing it first here, um, writing students, the, the way to get your career going is publish an unedited trans- transcript of, <laughs> of your dad <laughs> you're talking to your dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then ride the coattails of a total genius writing a bestseller who struck it gold you know, <laughs> at that exact moment. Did you write more stuff for McSweeney's after that? Yeah, then I was sort of like in the I would I wrote several more Q and A's with my dad, and then <laughs> and he was like, "I'm not going to do this anymore." <laughs> no, he was all into it. He was yeah. like, he wanted to come to McSweeney's events and sit with like T-shirts that said, "I'm Josh's dad." Ask me about the science or whatever. <laughs> and um, so that was fun. And then I started writing more for them, and then the Believer, and then I got an assignment from Harper's. Which, um, well, so I had taken, uh, so Lawrence Weschler was like early in the McSweeney's kind of like fan club. And um, he was teaching a class at Columbia, which I sort of audited audited because I was there. And I said, hey, McSweeney's, let me do it. And so we did that. And and then he, you know, um, he likes sort of helping out young writers. And so he was like, you should go down and talk to so-and-so at Harper's. So I did. That is Luke Mitchell who incidentally as a long form interview would be awesome. He's yeah. like a genius editor. Yeah, I was going to say both him and um, uh, Andrew Leland from The Believer are both people. I've oh, been yeah. on Leland my list of people to get too. on here. Yeah, Totally. Um, and then Leland, I worked with Leland a lot with The Believer. He's awesome. So when did you sort of make that jump uh, from doing, you know, interview with your dad kind of stuff to doing more like reported like well so i started with the believer asked me to go cover the uh 2004 campaign political yep. campaign yep so i went to iowa to the caucuses you know was on the dean bus and with carrie and edwards and all that stuff it was really fun had a total blast and um uh, wrote at length, wrote like a 10,000 word piece on like how the caucuses work. And that was like, but more sort of like fun reportage for the believer, yeah. which is funny to think about because now you could never do that because it came out like two months later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and like it was full of these like great anecdotes from the campaign. Trail, which <laughs> now nobody by two months later would be irrelevant. Yeah. But um, so, and then started kind of like, you know, I, and then I was filing also for the LA Weekly and the Village Voice. Yeah. And then that turned into... And I also had this con- I, art- I had this assignment from Harper's. Yeah. And the the story that I wrote was about Billy Mitchell, the Donkey Kong and Pac Man and Miss Pac Man and Donkey Kong Junior yeah. champion who is also featured in the documentary King of Kong, which you are uh, which were a producer on. on. Yeah. yeah. And 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 so I had. So I had started. I mean, even right from the beginning, like my first magazine assignment was like this bizarro topic which then I spent like a year reporting that piece because I wanted it to be like the most perfect thing ever 
because I was like, oh, once I publish the story in Harper's, like oh, I can just die. Yeah, yeah like, you'll live live forever on that money. I just <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and like I just thought that was the greatest thing that could ever happen, and it was very exciting. But I was writing that, I was working on that piece at the same time, and then the LA Weekly started up, and then I worked there, and then that also really. That was a great place. Also, no longer possible for young writers to just yes. go get a job at an alt weekly and like write three thousand words of copy a week. Yeah, and you know you can write about whatever you want if you've got enough voice. And like yeah. that was great, so much fun. What did you write about when you were at the weekly? I would just I would cultural stuff or reporting essays, yeah. whatever. I wrote about these. I wrote for a while like sort of a column of super highfalutin video game cultural essays, um, which were quite popular in the video game community. Yeah, <laughs> for whatever that's worth, and um, and uh, I would just I did like big report. I did a huge cover story on this guy, the one survivor of Heaven's Gate, the cult where they yeah. killed themselves. That was a big ten thousand word reported piece. I wrote it in three weeks, start wow. to finish. And also, I look back at it, and mm-hmm. it's like oh, it's great. <laughs> like, it was like so. It was like just being under the gun. I wrote yeah. the actual copy in twenty four hours straight, like yeah. college style. Yeah, and. You know, there was just something about it. like I didn't do some whole detailed outline. I just like reported it, had the character in mind, had the whole story, and sat down and did it. I mean, that was yeah. old school, where like you just the story had to be in. There was yeah. no pussyfooting around. So that was great. I wrote, I don't know, good. I don't know, kind of like uh, fun. Like I wrote about the guy who created the Laserium. That was a fun one. Um, stuff like that, and I would like expand that in twenty five hundred words about like lasers and like alice cooper and the planetarium and the, you know drug culture and you know those things were really fun to write i'm i was gonna try to like segue this without um but uh i think we're out of time i've got enough? a I've got, the point well across? i was gonna say i got like a million more questions for you i'd love to talk about um what's happened to you since Argo and, yeah. and movie stuff and, and how that's changed for you, right? So why don't come back? Maybe me and will Josh you co- could come back. Yeah, why don't we'll come back and we'll do it again. Epic. That's like his first story and we can talk about the, the whole thing. We're, this is part one. Journalism. This has been uh, Josh Berriman, part one. Thank you very much for coming <laughs> yeah, in, uh, Josh. And um, we'll have him back soon and uh, and check out, uh, check out uh, Coronado High, uh, currently available on yeah. the Atavist app and check out Epic, which will be somewhere um, medium or we'll link to it in the show notes I does I doesn't exist yet but it will by the time this airs I'd so like l- to give also a super quick shout out yes yeah shout, to shout the out of his team yeah which totally kicked ass on the production of the story <laughs> it was like a Herculean effort and it came out really good it, it came out excellent it's a great story um, thanks Josh we'll be back here next week yep And that was the Longform Podcast. Uh, thanks to Josh Behrman. Thanks to our super editor, Lauren Kirchner, my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Our awesome sponsors, Tiny Letter and Igloo Software. If you forgot how you were going to sign up for your Igloo, remember, igloosoftware.com slash longform. And of course, Tiny Letter, where you always find it, tinyletter.com. Uh, I am from Longform. That's longform.org. If you want to check out Evan's work, it's at atavis.com, and we'll be back here next week.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Socks brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.